My friend Charles Simeon was the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge, England, uh, back in the 1700s. He was preaching a sermon on this part of Revelation. And he talked about in the sermon, he talked about a, a passage like this, where we see a preview of the glories that are coming. I mean, this is the good stuff. If there's good stuff, this is it, right? This is the part that we're so excited about. And he says, a passage like this, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be thankful for God's gifts that he's given us today. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be uh, excited about or be, uh, you know, you know, kind of killjoys when it comes to enjoying the things that God, the good gifts that God has given us today. So we just celebrated Thanksgiving this week. We have much to be thankful for, and rightly so. So we should praise God for those good gifts. And yes, there are good things that God gifts us to enjoy in this life, even though it's broken by sin, right? In this world, we still receive these gifts from God, and so we can enjoy those gifts and be thankful to Him. But, Simeon said, we are born for higher things than this world can afford us. We are born for higher things than this world can afford us. I might say it this way. We were born for something better. We were born for something better. That truth kind of runs into the practical reality of our lives when we fail to keep our eye on our great God and what he has done and will do for us. For example, we seek satisfaction, peace, and security every day. We seek those things through other means outside of Christ. We're tempted to do that, and many days we give in to that temptation. So we're looking for help, we're looking for provision, we're looking for security and satisfaction. We want to sleep better at night, we want to not struggle with anxiety, right? We want our problems solved. But man, we were born for something better and we forget that. And so we might chase something sinful to bring us satisfaction. Or maybe it's a fear issue where our fears dominate our thinking every day and motivate us to behave in certain ways where we try to save ourselves and provide for ourselves and be our own God and our own Savior. But brothers and sisters, we were born for something better, something better than this world can give us. Can I encourage you this morning, a passage like this, where again, we get this preview of what's to come, a passage like this is meant to inform us about what God will do for us, to change us today. Don't be ignorant of what is coming to us. Don't be ignorant of what God has created for us and will give us. Because when we're ignorant of that or when we forget that, we chase idols instead of Him. We give into temptation instead of pursuing Christ. And we may follow our culture and ourselves in compromising our faith rather than living distinctly for his glory. So we're facing a lot right now. Again, I don't know all the details of your situation this morning, but I do know that whatever you're facing, a passage like this in Revelation 21, right, on into 22, that this passage is meant to not just inform you, but to encourage you to live by faith right now, whatever you're facing, because we were born for something better specifically the New Jerusalem. So let's get into the details. Remember last week in verses 1 to 8, we were introduced to the new creation, and we talked about God dwelling with his people, no more pain, no more suffering, God's work. It's his work that he's doing, making everything new. And we talked about the need to overcome, to conquer temptation, to say no to temptation, and to actually uh, follow Christ even now as we look forward to this new, new creation. One part of the new creation that was described was the new Jerusalem, this heavenly city descending to earth. And so now in verse 9, we kind of dive into that aspect of the vision with more detail. Now, this is a vision, right? It represents what God will do for us in the future. But as it shows us these different pieces of the New Jerusalem, we're meant to see the goodness of what God is doing for us. So watch verse 9 as he gets into some of the details here. John writes, Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the last plagues came and spoke with me. Come! I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So just pause there. One of these angels that had had one of the seven bulls with the the seven plagues, right? This angel that was back in chapter 16, right? Then now one of those angels says, okay, 
the plagues are done, the judgment's done, let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now this is now the third time the church has been described as the bride of the Lamb here in the tail end of Revelation. And there's an emphasis on the fact that we belong to Jesus and that we're looking forward to this day of unity with Christ as we actually live with him forever. So once again, there's an anticipation of that wedding. Now, what he sees is a city. And so is the city, the people, or the place? We talked about it last week. It's both. It's a, it's a place. It will be on the new earth, but it's also a people. It's populated by believers. More on that in a minute. But here the, the angel says, let me show you the, this beautiful bride, the wife of the lamb. So in verse 10, then he carried me then, excuse me, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. If you pause there, you might not notice it just upon reading verse 10 in English, but you need to know that the verbiage that John uses here, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. That's taken right out of Ezekiel's last vision in Ezekiel chapter 40 on through 48. And so as we're going to see this morning, a lot of what is uh, the language that's used to describe the new Jerusalem is taken from the vision of Ezekiel at the end of Ezekiel. And so at bare minimum, we know that what John is seeing here is consistent with, and maybe indeed even more information about, what Ezekiel was shown in his vision at the end of Ezekiel. What did Ezekiel see at the end of his vision? He saw a renewed earth. He saw a city on that earth, the new Jerusalem. And he saw God dwelling with his people forever. And so that's absolutely in perfect continuity with what John sees here. So he sees this, this new city, the holy Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, just like last week in chapter 21 verse 2. But note verse 11 as he starts to describe the new Jerusalem. He says, well, it was arrayed with God's glory. It was dressed with God's glory. It it was shining with the visible manifestation of the greatness of God, and you couldn't mistake it. He goes on, her radiance, that that radiance of God's glory, the, the, the city shining with God's glory, right? Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. John is trying to describe what he's shown in this vision, the shining city descending to earth. And he says, I, I'm having a hard time, you know, using words for it. I, the best I can get to is these precious gems, shining precious, precious gems. And we'll see precious gems are going to be used over and over in our passage this morning. That those gems are shining in different, different ways, showing the glory of God in the new Jerusalem. You see, the first thing we learned this morning about the new Jerusalem is it's filled with the glory of God. His greatness permeates every corner of the new Jerusalem. His glory will not and cannot be denied. It will radiate in every closet, in every alleyway, in every gate, in every street, in every room. His glory will be the primary characteristic of our eternal home with him. Glory is another word for greatness or value, right? And sometimes when we talk about glory, we're just talking about God's infinite value, which is hard for us to fathom. But sometimes in the Bible, his value is expressed visibly in a shining light. And that seems to be the idea here, that the city's radiating with this light that is the glory of God. Now, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it, but if it's so hard for us to understand, why does God reveal it to us? He reveals it to us because every day, and don't you know it's true, every day we are tempted to be satisfied by lesser glories, things of lesser value, right? So in the first century church in Asia Minor, the Roman Empire, they would be tempted to seek glory in maybe their career. And that's just like us today, where we might be tempted to seek glory in our career or in an educational achievement. We think, this is what life's all about. And a career is a good thing. And having a job is a good thing. And having a a degree is a good thing. It can be used for God's glory. But it is not the glory of God. It's God's glory that will permeate the new Jerusalem. And so sometimes if we make our lives all about the subordinate end, we will miss what we were actually made for. We were born for something better. We were born to radiate God's glory, to be 
captivated with a vision of his goodness to be blown away forever. And so here, the fact that the New Jerusalem will radiate in every corner of it with the glory of God, it's just kind of a, maybe a reminder to say, hold on a second, don't get, up, don't get caught up chasing the lesser glory. It could be not the career, it could be money for you. It could be entertainment, you know, having the latest gaming system or watching, binge watching the latest show or the, seeing the 27,000th Marvel movie or whatever it is, right? Like all these things that we can get so caught up in. Where it's like, this is what life is about. That is not what life is about. Those can be good gifts, but they are not the glory of God. Some of them can't be pursued for the glory of God. Sinful relationships, right? That that can't be pursued for God's glory. Hatred, anger, bitterness, that can't be pursued for God's glory. At the end of the day, we just need to know that we'll be tempted to settle for lesser glories. Don't. The new Jerusalem is coming. I, t- I abbreviated New Jerusalem NJ, and I thought, I, I thought this, in my notes, I kid you not, I did. And I thought, I thought, wow, can I, like, is that, is that a coincidence? Maybe not. Like, maybe it's not a coincidence. There's so much in New Jersey that is there, and so much that's not there. I don't, you know, I, so do with that what you will, okay? But we were born for something better. We were born for something better, the new Jerusalem, and it will be filled with the glory of God. It's also, it's also the work of God that's started back even before creation. Watch verse 12. This is interesting, 12 to 14. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. More on the wall uh, later. 12 gates, though. 12 angels were at the gates. Those angels have been in so many bad jokes about heaven, I'm not going to go there, okay? We're just not going to do it, okay? But 12 angels at the 12 gates. Note though, verse 12. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. That's a vision, vision of the city. What does the vision represent? We see shining light, the glory of God is there, radiating with God's glory, absolutely. We see 12 gates, 12 entry points, and in the 12 gates, or on the 12 gates, you have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed. In, in ancient Rome, all throughout the Roman Empire, you would go into Roman cities, including in Asia Minor, and you would see works that had been constructed. Gates had been built, you know, uh, different public buildings had been built, the streets had been built, all of that. And on these buildings, you will often find, almost always, you'll find inscriptions on, in the stone of the building or of the gate, or whatever. And the inscription will have the name of the benefactor who gave the money to build that gate, or that building, or whatever it is, right? So here, in the vision, what, this would make perfect sense to first century people, right? In the Roman Empire, they're going, oh yeah, there's 12 gates, and all the gates have the names of the benefactors on there. Who are the benefactors? Who are the ones that made it possible? The 12 tribes. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that the new Jerusalem is the fulfillment of God's promises to and his work in the people of Israel in the Old Testament. There's continuity here between what God had done before the arrival of Jesus and promising that, hey, I'm going to take a descendant of Abraham and through him I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And so the story of the 12 tribes is a story of God working to produce the Messiah and do the saving work. So that story of the Old Testament, it's not separate from the New Testament. It's not a different story than the story of the New Testament. It's the same story. And the 12 gates and the New Jerusalem here pictured in the vision have the 12 names of the tribes of Israel to say, hey, guess what? What God was doing then, it's fulfilled here. This is where it comes to fruition. But it's not just Old Testament. Keep going. Watch verse 13. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Okay. Verse 14, the city wall had 12 foundations. And the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. So the gates have the 12 names. There's one 12, right? the 12 tribes, and then the foundations of the walls, at the base of the walls, where the walls are built on, inscribed in that stone, you have what? You have the names of the apostles. We've got Old Testament. We've got New Testament. Why does this matter? The new Jerusalem not only will be filled with the glory of God, but the new Jerusalem is established on the work of the apostles and the prophets. The new Jerusalem is established on the work of the apostles and prophets. It's his kingdom that has come. 
And so there is this beautiful continuity as we see what God promised to do in the Old Testament. He has done in the New Testament. And as we read about what that means, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises in the Old, and he's doing this work, it's not just a work for ethnic Israel. It's a work for believers of Old Testament past, but it's also a work for believers from any tribe who will trust in Christ. And so when we think about the New Jerusalem, we have, yes, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, two 12s signifying the Bible is one story. It's one work of God. This is where it all ends. This is where it's all headed. It will be evident and obvious that in Ephesians 2.20, what the Apostle Paul says there, that, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that that work actually has come to its completion. That what God promised in the old, he's done in the new. There's continuity there. God is doing his work. And just so we're really clear, it's his work and his kingdom. It's not our kingdom, right? Which is true individually because sometimes you and I can be tempted, if we're honest, we can be tempted to just be all about us. And that's because of sin. We get self-focused, right? So it's all about me. I'm building my kingdom. And we just have to be careful there because, yes, God has called us to excel and to live for his glory. But as we do so in our families and in our careers and in our education and all of that, as we, as we seek his glory, we're not doing it for our purposes. We're doing it for his purposes. So often, Satan's trying to sell you the lie. You know what? You got to look out for yourself first. But the new Jerusalem, it's God's work that he's doing. And if it's God's work that he's doing... What makes more sense for us today is to get excited about what he's building rather than get caught up in what maybe we're building. Now, that would make a lot of sense to Christians in the Roman Empire who are watching construction projects happen in their towns, and they're seeing this impressive Roman road system continue to develop, right? And they're seeing all this money spent on building these beautiful things, and maybe they were thinking, you know what, the best thing I could do is invest in Rome. The best thing I could do is be excited about Rome. And this vision says, eh, hold on, hold on. Yeah, Rome's pretty impressive. But God says, I want to show you something better something bigger, something more glorious, something that he's been working on since before the foundations of the earth. And yes, the Old Testament is the story of God's work to rescue sinners. And yes, the New Testament is the, is the finishing of that story with the arrival of Jesus, his death and resurrection on our behalf, where now the lamb has, has shed his blood to take away the sins of the world and he's creating for himself his bride from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The New Jerusalem will be established on the work of the apostles and prophets. It's got these epic walls and these gates, and I know what some of you are thinking. Let's measure it. Absolutely. Go to verse 15. It needs to be measured. Verse 15, The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. And before we go too far you know, forward here, in uh, these apocalyptic visions in the Bible, often the prophet or apostle who's in the vision gets to participate in the vision a little bit. And sometimes they just speak. Sometimes they actually do things. Well, here the angel is the one doing the measuring, but John's like included in the process. So he's like, there. he's like, oh, this guy's going to measure. Let's go watch. Let's see what the results are, right? That's, but there's measuring of the, of the city in Ezekiel's vision of the New Jerusalem. There's measuring in the city in Zechariah's vision of the New Jerusalem. So this is a, a common Old Testament prophetic theme already. So we, we're not surprised to find it here. Verse 16, we get some of the numbers. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Now, some of your translations might put that number, 12,000 stadia, into like miles or, or, or kilometers or whatever, but it's actually better to keep it in the Roman measurement of stadia because it's, the significance is the number 12 there. So again, we've got another 12. We've got 12 tribes. We've got 12 apostles. 12, kind of in this, in this sense, it indicates the complete work of God that he's doing. Like it's the finished set. Okay, that's the idea. And the city is not just 12,000 stadia, but it's also 12,000 stadia in a cube. So it's 12,000 stadia wide, long, and high. And we'll talk more about why it's a cube in the future, but what you, got to, what you have to appreciate at least initially here is the orderliness of the New Jerusalem. Like Some of us, let's just be honest, some of us are orderly people. Can I get an amen from my people? 
that was, okay, that didn't work very well. Uh, some of you are, are enemies of order, and we know who you are, and God's coming for you, right? Some of, you, some of you are enemies of order, and I'm not looking at my son. I'm not looking at him right now. So some of you are enemies of order, right? Listen, listen. The orderly, orderliness here of, of the New Jerusalem laid out in a perfect square, right, measured just right, it, it just means this, that God is doing this work, and he's fulfilling his promises to make it just right. Have you ever had the, the joy of trying to build Swedish furniture that you purchased? <laughs> right? There's some flaws in this model. You buy this furniture. I don't know where they sourced it from. I don't know if it's all coming from Sweden. That's, another, that's maybe for another day. You get home with the boxes. You open, you open the instructions, okay? Now, it used to be, and I'm old enough to know this, it used to be in the earlier days of the unnamed Swedish furniture company that they would give the instructions in multiple languages, Right? And let's just say that whoever wrote the instructions, I'm not sure they spoke any languages, okay? Because they're just, they just weren't, so I'm like, ah, the English didn't work. Maybe the French will get it. Nope. Swedish? Do I need to learn Swedish? Okay, can't do it. Now, I don't know if you've you've bought any Swedish furniture recently, but now if you buy Swedish furniture, they don't even put words in it. They have these drawings. And you might think, wow, what a helpful way to communicate. Or not. Because deciphering ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics is sometimes easier than understanding. It's like, what are we even doing here? And I just, that was a long way to say this. Sometimes I've been doing that, putting together Swedish furniture, and I've just wondered, did they even know what they were doing? Was there even a plan? The angel measures the New Jerusalem here. 12,000 stadia on the dot. Wide, long, tall. It's just right. Everything according to plan. Because the new Jerusalem will be the fulfillment of God's promises. The fulfillment of God's promises. That's also reflected in verse 17. Then he measured its wall, he measured the wall, and the wall is 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the first angel used, okay, or which is the angelic measurement, depending on your translation there. 144 cubits, once again, 144, I mean, I don't know how your math is, that's two twelves. So once again, we've got this Old Testament, New Testament kind of balance in the numbers saying, this is God's work from start to finish here, the one story of the Bible coming to completion. This wall is ridiculously thick. It's also, it's also tall, and so because of that, obviously what's included here is not just the orderliness, that, that this is the fulfillment of God's promises, but it's also reflecting the fact that in the New Jerusalem, we are safe from all threats. What do walls do? Walls protect the inhabitants of the city. And so here the picture of our eternal destiny is we will be safe from all threats. There's nobody getting through that wall. There's nobody tunneling under this wall There's nobody that's going to be able to actually come at you. And so you might just go, oh, wait a minute, hold on here. If this is really where we're headed, then that means that truly, in the hands of God, I am eternally safe. So what do I have to be afraid of? Well, we might answer that question honestly. I'm afraid of a lot. I'm afraid of physical threats to my health. I'm afraid of circumstances happening, bad things happening to my family. I'm afraid of financial investments going south and not being able to pay for this or pay for that or having to declare bankruptcy. I'm afraid of this relationship not working out and and seeing, you know, hurt in a relationship. I'm afraid of a lot. But brothers and sisters in the New Jerusalem, we are safe from everything. There we will be safe from everything, which means here we can risk anything. I mean, the the fact is, first century Christians in the Roman Empire, especially at this time when, when John's given this vision, they're in a circumstance where they're facing increasing threats from society, from their friends, even from family members selling them out. 
They're losing jobs potentially. Some could be imprisoned. They were confiscating scriptures from time to time. And yes, some had died for their faith. And so they're going, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is it safe for me to follow Jesus? Well, in the Roman Empire in the first century, no, it's not safe for you to follow Jesus. Bad things could happen to you because you're a follower of Jesus. Fast forward 2,000 years and some places on planet earth today, you could be a follower of Jesus. And to be a follower of Jesus means you're risking imprisonment or death. That's a thing. But in our culture, we're not really risking imprisonment or death at the moment. We're risking being thought of as the weirdo by the family or being like known as the Bible guy at school or at church, right? Being made fun, or school or at work or being made fun of, like facing heat, you know, taking heat from the culture. But because we're safe there, because when we're finally at home in the New Jerusalem, we are not at risk in any way, okay, because we're safe from everything, today we can risk anything to follow Christ. We can risk anything. And God's not going to ask you to risk everything, but he will ask you to risk something. I don't know what it's going to be. You're going to be in a situation, and there's going to be that moment where you're going to go, wait a minute, if I'm really going to follow Jesus here, this is going to cost me. Am I saying no to go to that movie with everybody? It's going to cost me. Am I going to insist on telling the truth on my taxes? It's going to literally cost me. Am I going to hold the line here and, and tell the truth at work and not fudge numbers on this report? It, it could cost me. Am I going to hold the line and let the Bible determine my view on life as far as what I think God calls us to with family, with gender, with, with romantic relationships, with political issues, right? I'm going I'm to let the Bible dictate my views. It's going to cost you. But there you're safe. So here we can risk. And don't forget one of the key storylines in Revelation is that many Christians will give their lives for Jesus. And they haven't lost. They've won. Part of this is related to the measuring of the city that God fulfills his promises and therefore we are safe there. Safe from all threats. So yes, the new Jerusalem will be the fulfillment of God's promises And it means we'll be safe from all threats, but that's not all. Watch verse 18 as he continues to describe the beauty of the city. The building material of its wall, he writes, was jasper, precious gem, right? And the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The good stuff. Verse 19. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third, Chalcedony, the fourth, Emerald, the fifth, Sardonyx, the sixth, sixth, Carnelian, the seventh, Chrysolite, the eighth, Beryl, the ninth, Topaz, the tenth, Chrysoprase, the eleventh, Jacinth, the twelfth, Amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single, single pearl, and the main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. If you think about this beautiful picture, John's trying to say it's, it's more beautiful and more valuable than we can fathom. These, the, these images, the images of the precious gems, there are a few places in Scripture that pick up on that. Part of this list is, is given in Isaiah 54. Similarly, the idea they're talking about the eternal home of God's people and its value. You also have the, the reference to the high priest who used to wear this this thing on his chest called an ephod, and on it it had 12 stones, precious gems that each represented one of the tribes. And again, the idea is that he's representing God's people and they belong to God, so they have value. Like That's the idea there. The idea here is, is pretty clear that the new Jerusalem, not only will it be the fulfillment of God's promises and safe from all threats, but it's precious. It will be precious beyond measure. Better than Rome. Better than Paris. Better than Washington, D.C. Better than New York City. Better than, insert the most impressive city you can think of on earth. You know, Dubai or these glorious cities with all the new technology. And No, the New Jerusalem is better than all of that. More valuable than all of that which again brings up the issue of investment. What do I value? What am I really investing in? Some of us would give anything to have 
massive amounts of wealth and, and to see worldly wealth grow and to not have that issue. But the fact is, here, the vision is given to John to say to John and the church, listen, don't forget that real value is in the New Jerusalem. That's what lasts forever. This is what God is doing. And so if you want to invest in something that's going to give eternal returns, you invest in this city. You remember Jesus said it another way. He said, remember where your, your treasure is? That's where your heart will be. And he says, don't get caught up putting your treasure in this world. Because Rome, it's not going to last. It doesn't have that eternal value there. Yeah, you might be able to invest in a particular business or a particular aspect of life today, but just remember that ultimately what we need to be investing in, and this is not just about finances, this is about energy and passion, is the work of God building his kingdom. Worldly wealth will seem so common in the New Jerusalem. The street of the city is pure gold. You know what that means? It means the most precious resource that we can think of Right? The thing that's worth the most, at least in an ancient Roman context, the thing that's worth the most, gold, in the New Jerusalem, it's asphalt. It's asphalt. They pave the streets with it. What do we do with all this stuff? Eh, let's pave the streets with it. We've got so much, we might as well. It kind of jars your image of what's really valuable, doesn't it? This is where we're headed. Now, there's one very interesting detail, though, about the New Jerusalem, and that's where the vision turns next. Watch verse 22. He tells us about the, 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 the walls and the gates and the foundations and all these you know, shining jewels and all of this, the streets of gold. But then in verse 22, note what John says. It surprised him, I think, a little too. I did not see a temple in it. Okay, pause. Hold on a second. Zechariah had a vision of the New Jerusalem, okay? His vision had walls, uh, you know, the glory of God was actually the walls of the city protecting the people, all that. No doubt there would have been an assumed, there's a temple in the middle of the city. Like, that's the whole point, God dwelling with his people. You fast forward to Ezekiel. Ezekiel gets a vision of the New Jerusalem. What does he see in the New Jerusalem? He sees access there available to the, the people of, of God who have trusted in him, both from the tribe of, uh, tribes of Israel and outside the tribes of Israel. They all have access. Access to what? Access to the city and specifically to the temple. In fact, Ezekiel puts, gives a lot of real estate to describing this uh, temple in the New Jerusalem. And he has, you know, it's like, wow, it's, it's all this details given because that's God dwelling with his people. It doesn't give all the details, but it gives a lot there. So he spends a lot, of, a lot of real estate in that vision describing the temple. And because John uses so much terminology from Ezekiel, and is it consistent with Zechariah, we think, well, if we're talking about the New Jerusalem, we got to talk about the temple because the temple is the focal point. It's why God chose Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel because it's where his footstool is with his people. His temple is his house where he dwells with among his people. It's where the priests serve him to facilitate the, the relationship between God and, and his people. So the temple's like the center point. It was built at the most important spot. Like that's why it's there. And so there's so much prominence given to the temple. And so here he's talking about the new Jerusalem. But then he says in verse 22, you know what I didn't see? I didn't see a temple. Because, verse 22, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Where's the temple? Where do I go to have fellowship with God? And the answer is, in the New Jerusalem, you're already there. Because, in Ezekiel's vision, the name of the city is the Lord is there. You don't need an actual temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The Father and the Son are the temple. And they're there. And you're there. So there's no need to go to a building. It's not like there's one special place in the middle of the city where that's where the Lord is. No, he's just there. It's all a temple. Which, by the way, connects back to the measurement being a cube. So I don't know if you know, but in, in the original temple design, that's Solomon's temple that he built in 1 Kings, the, holy, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, that was like the throne room of God. Like, that's it. The most holy place. That was, the measurements for that were also a cube. Like, that's the spot. So it's kind of like, again, perfection. It's God's throne room. Like, there it is, a cube. And so here we find the New Jerusalem is a cube. And we find there's no temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And there are some implications to this, verse 23. 
The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. Well, what about us? Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light, the light of the city, which is just the shining glory of God. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Verse 25, its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. The new Jerusalem will be the dwelling of God with his people. Now, you just got to know, before we move off of this point, the story of the Bible is the story of God making a way to rescue sinners, and to dwell with his people. When God created Adam and Eve, he walked and talked with them in the garden. Sin severed that relationship. And as some scholars would argue that the design of the garden in Eden itself was a temple. It was like designed to be that God dwelling with his people. But one way or another, we know that when God makes the promise to resolve the issue of of sin, and he promises to do so through the family of Abraham, we find that family in slavery in Egypt. We find them saying no to God and yes to the gods of, e- uh, gods of Egypt. And so God rescues his people out of Egypt. Why? So he can dwell with them. And in Exodus, God says, I'm going to dwell with you. I've rescued you. You are my people. So build me a temple. He called it the tabernacle. It was a portable temple. And he gave them all kinds of instructions because the whole point of rescuing them from slavery was so that he would dwell with his people. And when they would travel, they would, the priests would pack up the tabernacle and at the center of the camp, and they would take it to the next location. And when God stopped leading them, then they would stop right there. They would set up the tabernacle and all the other tribes were organized around the center of the tabernacle, the temple, God dwelling with his people. Fast forward, when Israel finally gets into the land that God promised them, and he says, Jerusalem, this is my city. And then he says, what's going to happen here? Well, I'm gonna, you're going to build me a temple there. And David wanted to build it so badly. But God had ordained that it would be Solomon who would build that temple. And that's exactly what Solomon did. He built the temple. Why? Because it was, it was a way for God's people to say, look, we are dwelling with God. He's made it possible for us to dwell with him through the sacrificial system. We fast forward to the New Testament and we find Jesus saying some interesting things about the temple. In fact, he says, you know what? You can tear this thing down. What? Tear down the most important part of the city? Why? Jesus says, tear it down, I'll rebuild it in three days. What? It took Herod the Great four decades to build that version of the temple during Jesus' lifetime. Who does this guy think he is? Well, Jesus is making a point there in John chapter 2 at the end. He says... I am the temple. You tear me down, and I'll rebuild in three days. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. But what he's saying is, my death and my resurrection fulfill the sacrificial system, and I replace the temple. And that's why in the New Jerusalem, there is no temple. Because the whole thing is temple. Because Jesus has paid the price for us to dwell with him. God saves us to relate to us forever. Can I just encourage you with that news this morning? That Jesus died to provide the forgiveness of your sins, to gift you righteousness. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. So we're headed for this eternal future with him. But can I just encourage you that Jesus didn't merely die to forgive your sins? Like, he didn't die just so you could be forgiven of your sins. He died so you could be forgiven of your sins and be conformed into his image and live in relationship with him forever. That's why Jesus died and rose from the dead. Sometimes we get, and I don't know what it is, it's just maybe a self-focus or whatever, but, and, and rightly so, we talk about, man, we need to be forgiven of our sins. Absolutely. That's a huge part of, of, our, of the problem you know, that we have with God is that we, we, we sin, right? But in the removal of sin, it's like, okay, my sins are forgiven. Sweet, I'll be in heaven forever. I don't have to worry about God until I die. Like we kind of, sometimes that's the way it ends up playing out in our lives. I said the prayer, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid, so now I'm good. So if I get in a car accident, I know I'm covered and I'll just live my life and do whatever I want. That is not what God is doing in salvation. He's rescued you and me from our sins, not so we could ignore him for the rest of our lives, but so we could start living now in relationship with him. That's the whole point. And so here in this vision of the new Jerusalem, yes, the new Jerusalem is the dwelling of God with his people 
But God has saved us to live that way even now. Relating with him on a daily basis. Seeing his glory and living for it. Being conformed to the image of his son. I think there's a caution here. I've been talking about, you know, nothing unclean will ever enter it. I think maybe there's a caution here in the vision. You know, be careful, believer, if you, if you live a little too much like others who don't follow Jesus. Be careful about what that might say about you. Now, the new Jerusalem will also be illuminated by the glory of God, hence the light. So we talked about it doesn't need the sun or the moon because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb, right? So God's, we don't need other light because God himself is the light. And really that, that just reminds us that there's no temptation to idolatry. There's not going to be any issue in the new Jerusalem going, should we worship God? Should we be glorifying God? Should we seek satisfaction in God? Temptation will be removed. That is going to be an awesome day. But can we just all acknowledge the obvious that we're not there yet? And so that means today you're tempted. You're tempted to maybe seek another source of illumination or light. We also see in this part of the vision that the new Jerusalem will be accessible to all nations. You know, all the nations are going to be able to come into the new Jerusalem and bring their gifts to the Lord. And what is that picture? Well, a couple things. Obviously, we've got believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation that are there on the new earth. And the idea is that I don't know, will there be economy and commerce? It seems like it. What will, we, what will we be doing on the new earth? Well, we'll be reigning on the earth, just like we were created to do back in Genesis. So we'll all have our, our roles and our jobs and responsibilities, and we'll do those things, and there will be produce. And what will we produce? Well, whatever we produce will be brought to the Lord and gifted to him as worship, because that's what we were created to do. It's just beautiful here that, that all the nations will be, have this unfettered access to the Lord. It answers the problem of prejudice permanently. There's no, there's no, no more racism, no more prejudice. It will be just right because all the nations will have access to the Lord. This is where we're headed. It doesn't mean we don't fight against the sin of prejudice today. Of course, we fight against it today, but we have to be realistic. And now listen, the ultimate solution to the problem of prejudice in our lives and in our culture is the new Jerusalem. That's the day we're looking for. Now, Christians should be living that way now, but we're not there just yet. And as if all this wasn't enough, and it is glorious, but as if all this wasn't enough, watch the first few verses here of chapter 22, the final part of this glimpse of the new Jerusalem. The angel still showing John all these things. Notice what he says in verse 1 here, chapter 22. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, Clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Don't miss it. The new Jerusalem will be better than Eden. Did you catch the imagery? The river, there's multiple rivers in Genesis, but the river produces Life, you have to have water for life. There's a a river that gives life and it's flowing right out of the throne. Whose throne is it, by the way? It's the throne of the Father and the Son. Why do they share the throne? Well, because God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Incidentally, where's the Spirit in this vision? Well, I think the Spirit is represented in the church, the bride of Christ, because the Spirit dwells in us. So here you have this throne and the throne of the Father and the Son. It's, it's, it's got this river coming out of it, the river that gives life that we have access to all the time. And along the banks of the river, there's the tree of life. And probably the imagery is like, is like trees of life dotting the whole river all the way down. And these trees are producing fruit, not once a year, but every month they're producing fruit, all these different kinds of fruit. So eternal provision and satisfaction, that's right there for us. Everything we lost... When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden in Eden because of sin, everything we lost, we will gain. There, there was one tree. Here, there's a bunch of trees, right? There, we'll have access to this forever. We're not removed. Now, we we have permanent access. It's better than Eden. 
We have the permanent removal of the curse from creation. Did you notice the words, by the way? There will no longer be any curse. Which curse? The curse. The curse from Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve failed. All that removed, gone. And of course, we have the throne of of the Father and the Son being in the middle of the city. And his servants in verse 3 are worshiping him. That word worship, you could could translate that serving, right? Worshiping, serving, because they go together. And I think the idea here is that we'll be worshiping God in that we will be serving, reigning for him forever. So we will be active and busy in this picture of our eternal home in the new Jerusalem. And again, there's intimacy with God. We will see his face. Tell you what, it's so interesting when you, when you read, especially in the Old Testament, you, you, people don't have access to God because of sin, okay? Because of his perfect glory, he can't handle it. We would, we would have to be killed and we can't see his face. Even Moses, you know, it was, it was a special servant of God in the Old Testament. He asked to see God's face and God's like, no, I'll let you see the tail end of my glory. That's it. I can't show you my face. But here, we see his face. And his name will be on our foreheads. You didn't know there were tattoos of the New Jerusalem, did you? Yeah, don't tell anybody that. That's just a weird amount. His name will be tattooed on our foreheads like on the turban of the high priest. And you know what that said? It said, belonging to the Lord. It's short in Hebrew, but belonging to the Lord. That's us. Belonging to the Lord forever. Relating to him without sin as we were created to do. No more night. No more exhaustion. No more being tired. No more nightmares. No more, no more fear of the dark. Right? What's going on in the dark? Hiding things. None of that. Just the light from the glory of God shining and us reigning with him forever. It will be better than Eden. Eternal satisfaction, eternal healing, provision. Remember the leaves of the the tree of life provide healing for the nations. Not that we'll need healing, but the point is, this is God's provision for us forever. Again, this this is God's grace. And it's all consistent with the rest of the vision we don't have to fear. You know, the, the gates are left open all the time. There's no fear of, of harm. There's no fear of attack. It's just intimacy with God forever. Just the church reigning with Christ forever on the new earth, just as we were created to do. We were born for something better. And that matters today. Because if you lose sight of this vision, you could get wrapped up in pursuing something that's temporary, something that's sinful, something that cannot and will not satisfy And that's really the urgent issue. The point of Revelation is not to give you a bunch of details so you can go, you know how many cubits high the wall in the New Jerusalem is going to be? 144 cubits. That's not the point. The point is that we would be be aware of our eternal home with God and how glorious it will be and that that awareness would stir us on to faith today, right now. Because I can tell you something that... The New Jerusalem, its initials may be NJ, but in this NJ, we face trouble. We face discouragement. We face temptation. We face corruption. We face pain and sorrow and exhaustion and physical trials and and all of it. We face so much that is so hard. And as you're facing all of that, you might get weary and you might get worn down and you might think, you know what, maybe I should just be into what everybody else is into. And this vision is gifted to the church to say, brother and sister, just don't forget what's coming for you. Don't forget what God has provided for you. Don't forget where you're headed. And yes, it may cost you today, but he's worth it. Because paradise was lost. But in Revelation 22, paradise is found. I don't know how familiar you are with John Milton's classic, Paradise Lost. They don't do poetry like that anymore. These epic, long poems that they don't have traditional rhyme, but it's just, you know, it's an aspect of English literature that I think, frankly, we've lost uh, and we, we miss out on. It's a super long poem, right? It's about Adam and Eve sinning and getting kicked out of the garden. Getting kicked out of Eden. It's about paradise lost. But all along the way, you get these hints. In Milton's you know, description, you get these hints of 
resolution, restoration, redemption, what the Messiah is going to do to solve the problem of the curse, right? So on and so forth. It's worth the effort to give it a read. Lest you don't get to it, I'll just give you a highlight here. Towards the end, Michael the archangel speaking and talking to Adam and Eve in the midst of their failure, but giving them hope. And this is what he says about where we're headed. He says, For then the earth shall all be paradise. Far happier place than that of Eden. And far happier days. Listen, brothers and sisters, we can have true joy today, but there will be no greater joy, there will be no greater happiness that we can experience than what is coming for us in the new Jerusalem. May that motivate us to follow Christ today. Would you pray with me? And let's ask God to help us to do just that. Lord, we thank you for this vision where there's so much that's here that's relevant to us, Lord. We thank you for this reminder of the goodness of what you are doing in redemption. We thank you for this glimpse of the new Jerusalem, our eternal home, and all these different aspects of it. Lord, we pray that as we think about what you have for us, that we would be motivated to trust you today. We thank you that we were born for something better. We pray that you would help us to say no to idolatry, to temptation. Lord, I pray especially for those who are here today who know that they're giving in to temptation, that that they are sinning actively and they need to stop. They need to repent of that sin and turn to you. And we thank you that there is grace and forgiveness available to us because of the Lamb, Lord Jesus, because of your death and resurrection. We pray that you would help us to say no to that temptation, to live distinctly as Christians in the midst of a darkening culture, Lord. And Lord, we ask that you would be glorified even as we endure the difficulties of living in a broken world, as we endure pain, as we endure physical challenges, as we endure financial disappointment, as we endure betrayal and heartache, Lord, as we endure relational difficulties, we ask that you would help us to cling to you, to cling to this vision of what you are doing. And we thank you that this is not a maybe or wishful thinking, but Lord, this is a promise of what you are doing to fulfill the work that you've described all throughout the scripture. We thank you that there's unity in the story of the Bible between the Old and the New Testament. We thank you that we can be confident in what you've done for us in Christ. So we ask now that you would help us to live in light of our tomorrow. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your glorious name, amen.